We're back with episode two of Phasing Out. I'm sitting down with Raul Espinosa, who is the executive director of All Kings, an organization that works with men who were previously incarcerated and helps them reintegrate back into society by giving them the tools they need to process their emotions. Raul works with men on becoming more emotionally intelligent. So Raul, how did you get into this line of work? Uh, I got into this work about 15 years ago. I started getting in involved in emotional intelligence development and started working for a platform where we just grow our emotional awareness. Uh, that one was more geared towards creating results in our life. So making leaps and bounds in our career and our family and our health, whatever it is that we want to attract. And been fortunate enough to travel the world and work with different communities and different organizations. Oh, and, and it wasn't for men only? It was... No, I've always worked with men and women. Actually, I've worked a lot with women. But now for the last two and a half years, I've been with All Kings and we have a focus on working with specifically men. How do you even begin with that? Someone that just came out of the prison system and probably hasn't seen friends or family in a long time and you're sitting there and asking them to just expose themselves and tell you their deepest, darkest secrets. How do you create an environment that they feel safe in? I think the learning how to be in your emotions comes as a consequence of creating safe spaces. So what we do is we create safe containers for people to show up and do their work and process trauma, process any healings, process any emotional baggage or burdens that they've encountered that live in trauma or something that's really present that they just want to alleviate this on the spot. Historically, men don't often have safe spaces to just come and land and be all of themselves. So we create these safe containers for all men to arrive, in particular, for formerly incarcerated men, uh, to arrive and unpack whatever it is that they're going through. And in the process of doing so, they become more familiar with themselves and their emotions and everything that they're navigating. Do the men know each other? There might be some people that have come across each other in within inside the prisons, but mostly not. I mean, unfortunately, we have the highest rate of incarceration around the world. So we're talking about tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of men that are coming home, let alone just doing so in New York. We have hotels currently filled with returning citizens of people who don't have shelters, don't have housing, don't have jobs. Uh, and so the likelihood is probably slim that they knew each other inside. So most of these men are stepping into a brand new space where they don't really know anyone there. So they're walking into a room with strangers and you're asking them to just tell their story? We prepare them before they walk in to let them know what we do. Uh, so if you're showing up, you're ready and willing to do the work on the most part. You might not know what you're going to come across, but there's an awareness and willingness to say, I choose to be here and I choose to do some work. Are you differentiating between different tiers of criminal history? No, it's <laughs> it's all men. All men are able to, to be here regardless of incarceration. Uh, there's a number of our community members that haven't been incarcerated. And that's kind of the point. It's not to other people. It's not to say, well, you've gone through this. So therefore, this is just for you. The healing that occurs with a diverse group of men from diverse economical backgrounds and circumstances and situations the fact that we could all come together and speak our truth, especially with formerly incarcerated men being trained to facilitate another man's healing is transformative in itself. So it's a wide range for someone who did juvenile time when they were teenagers to did 30 years inside of a federal prison uh, and they, everything in between. In prison, there is a hierarchy and different tiers of criminal activity. How do you prevent that environment from taking place in your workshops? So there's... A good amount of the men that come through our system that we actually don't know what they'd serve time for. Right. And 
it's irrelevant in a sense. Uh, we're not talking about our capacity for harm and violence. I think that lives within the majority of people, let alone men, that anger and violence has been a vehicle for communication, a vehicle to deal with whatever we're being oppressed by. But we don't segregate, we don't we don't create any standards for people who have done something as opposed to other. There's a saying that hurt men hurt men or hurt people hurt people. And so this started from somewhere, this pain, this trauma, this belief systems, these actions were mirroring something that these men felt before. So the trauma didn't start when they were incarcerated. It started many years before that. So therefore, however you interacted with your trauma, it's irrelevant for us right now if we're just doing the work about what happened, what's going on, what are you currently dealing with, what is subconsciously or consciously dictating your life. So whatever that is, you have a seat here in a safe place for us to do that work together. What's different about this space is that we don't replace therapy. We don't replace support groups or AA or any anything else that supports mental health. We're not replacing any of that. But what's different is that in this brotherhood, all of us come sit down and tell the truth. Though I'm the executive director of the nonprofit, I sit down in a circle. And in order for me to create a safe space for you to do your work, that means I need to show up and do my work first. So I share openly. I become vulnerable and open myself up and create the permission for the next man to do the same. And so some men look at this as a space to process some of their trauma, but really what for some others is like, what other safe place do I have that I could go and be myself, that I could be accepted regardless of what crime I committed or how the society views me or my economical conditions over here, I'm an equal. And that is completely rare for some people that will live their lifetime without experience that level of acceptance. So how does it work? How does someone get in touch and then join one of these groups? How often do you meet up? Men come across us from different different avenues. One is personal reach out. We see the transformation that happens within us for having those safe containers and safe spaces. And therefore, we go back to our reality, to our friendships, to our families, to our jobs. And we show up differently because we're doing the work. It's a process of reflection of something is different. What is this? So a lot of our recruitment is word of mouth. Brothers that bring other brothers to come through and sit with us. And they feel safe enough to want to explore it for themselves. Another vehicle is we've established partnerships with different reentry uh, firms inside of New York. So Exodus is a large reentry, one of the largest reentry programs where they take returning citizens and support them with housing, mental health, job placement, and an array of different different skill sets to support them in their transition. They send us men every time we're going through uh, a cohort, every time we're going to do a retreat, we're we become an outlet where they could send some of their participants or staff to come through our trainings and do our work. And we've established that partnership with a few different organizations inside New York. So there's different funnels of how men are streaming through our community. And then once they're here, we have something called a quest weekend. A quest weekend is a retreat. If we either do a nature quest where we're upstate New York and we do this work in the woods. And so we integrate earth elements into a lot of what we do. Or we do a city quest for some of our guys who can't get out of the city it is too inconvenient or where in the city brooklyn okay. we have a space that we do our work in brooklyn and it changes but we do this work so that some of our guys who are on probation and can't leave the city uh, can still have access to this community and be part of the initiation weekends so these quests are usually a two or three day event over a weekend where we take a deep dive into 
our emotional past and our emotional intelligence. We're diving in so far past the surface and really getting the most honest conversations that we've ever had in our life about shame, sadness, anger, joy, fear. We bring it all to the table. Do you think that emotional intelligence is a term that people that were formerly incarcerated even think about? It's a term that's on their radar. I don't feel like I was really aware of emotional intelligence until my mid-20s as a concept in general? I think it's emotional intelligence is taught in our communities. If you go look for it, it's not something that's very much offered. You believe emotional intelligence is can be taught? I think by through facilitation, through practicing experiential learning and being to being able to navigate and understand what we're going through emotionally, we start developing our awareness about how that works, how that impacts us, what are our patterns, what is our shadow, How do we integrate it? So the more time we spend with it, the more it can be developed. So yeah, it can be taught. And some of these, some of these men also have been doing this work inside of prison. If they've been doing, if they've served some serious time, a lot of transformation starts happening well before they come out. For some men, they were, they had former life sentences where they never thought they were getting out. And they started to do their transformation and healing inside of the prison walls. And if they're out now, you know, they could continue doing their work outside of it. But for some of these guys, I've heard that their greatest teachers and their largest acquired peace happen within those walls. Do you think that some people are sad to leave? I believe, I'm sure. I'm sure there's feelings of sadness uh, and maybe above sadness, fear. If a guy was 16 and had a moment that he responded from anger and did something that was really out of integrity that ended up him having 20 plus years inside of a prison. It means he's getting out of prison at, let's say, 36 or 40 years old. You learn how to be a man inside of these walls in the conditions that you've been exposed to and learn how to survive in that reality. So whatever that's now you're coming out here to a world where No one knows your name. You are not respected. You have to abide by what some brothers call doing time out. So doing time in is doing their sentence within inside the prison. Doing time out is doing their continued sentence outside of prison. Uh, Responding or having to abide by a parole officer that they have to check in every 90 days or 30 days, whatever that their agreement is. They have a hard time finding housing till they're in shelters for months at a time. They're going for jobs and they're discriminated against. Oh, you're a felon. You're not qualified. You're a criminal. You're a decay to society. Your family is dealing with you and probably dishing out a lot of the burden that they've had to carry while you were away. All that trauma, all that pain, it is hard for our guys that are coming home after a while. It can be hard for some of our guys who are coming home after a while. And it's much safer and comfortable to be in a space that's familiar for them. So above sadness, I think fear is an aspect of who am I out here? I know who I am in there, but who am I out here? What do you think is the most shocking thing you've learned in your work with people who have served time? I don't know if I've really been shocked by anything. I might have been shocked by stories, some of their lived experience where, and it's not shock, I just really feel for them. You know, I've, I do work with some men, the, the most, some of the most masculine men you can imagine bawling about what happened when they were five for the first time that they never felt safe enough to express what was happening until now. And so, and I'm saddened that this is not a common, it's not common for any of my brothers. 
it's not common for any of my men out there in the world to have a safe place to come with all of all of your ideas, your curiosities, your experiences, what things you are ashamed of, that so many men, the majority of all, all the men that I knew growing up without a real safe place to come and be met with love for all of themselves. And let alone these guys who might have needed it the most growing up. Do you think that they've never been asked how they felt ever until this group? Maybe. Some of them might not have been asked. Others who have been asked, but the response or what you share is conditional. Or you can say what you really feel or mean, but you'll be judged for it or ridiculed by it. And if you are sharing, and I, I dealt with this plenty, actually, where I have some of my brothers who love me, some friends, I call them brothers, but like some friends who love me very much. But if I come with them with something that I'm vulnerable about, if they don't know how to deal with interact it. with their own emotions, they're going to respond to me with how they deal with their emotions, which is usually humor. So if right. I'm being vulnerable and open up about something that could be shameful for myself, if they don't know how to deal with it, they're going to respond back with maybe a bullyish type of attempt because they're trying to make light of a situation because they don't know how to deal with death or hardship. And so therefore, I have to navigate, am I really safe enough to really be honest here? Even if this is my best friend, can I really be fully honest here? Probably not. So let me not say. Do you think humor is one of the most more common coping mechanisms? Amongst friends, I think if... If someone is not your friend and you're looking to, if you live a life in fear, and especially if you grow up in the conditions of you are either lion or sheep and you want to assume lion position so you don't get hurt, you might look for opportunities to how to harm people with where they're vulnerable. And so even more reason to not be vulnerable or share because whether you love me or not, I'm vulnerable to however it is that you choose to hold space for me. And unfortunately, within men, we're not taught to be emotionally compassionate and empathetic and hold space for other men trying to navigate the same thing. Do some of your workshops merge uh, men who haven't been incarcerated with men who have? And is it? Yes, it's available to all men. Uh, for all kings, it's 18 and up, 18 years old and up. We've had men that come came in at 18 years old. So they're the youth of our community. And our eldest is around 80. And we have everything in between men who have served time or haven't. But one of our guys who was original firekeeper, we say firekeeper, the ones who were holding the torch at the beginning and really helping us grow our community. He said that he would say all men have done time, meaning all men have been oppressed to a certain level for being men. And we are allowed to be men and thrive in society in a particular way. And some people call it toxic masculinity. I say it's mis misguided masculinity, but it needs to be patriarchal for it to be socially accepted. Who's really out there teaching men how to be men? Especially if you're coming and being brought up like myself in the absence of a father, who's teaching us? All I know is societal rules on how I should operate in order to win, to dominate even from a young boy, conquer, defeat, uh, beat them, be strong, be the man of the house, toughen up, boys don't cry. All that, those are our teachers and how to be men. And yet we wonder why there's so much destruction going on in the world. And yes, it's toxic, but really it's just misguidedness that we didn't really learn how to be. What does it mean to be a man? I don't think that has a definition. Think what it is to be an existing being a human being 
But even that still is limiting. I think there are traits that we could assume, but they're not by law. It is not so defined. I think, can we live in kindness? Can we take on traits that are societally recognized as masculine or feminine? Like masculine in society is deemed as something that's productive, progressive, creation, destruction, moving forward, just moving forward, right? It's more of a linear thing that's moving front and back. When feminine energy in society is deemed as something maybe horizontal, it's nurturing, nurturing. it's inclusive. Yeah, that's the first you know, thing that it's came to mind. It's involved, it's considerate, right? And so those are technically, quote unquote, masculine and feminine traits. And that anyone can assume. It's about being in harmony and in balance with what's really true for you. But then how do you help these men unlearn everything that they've consumed from the media, from their families, from their time in prison? How do you help them unlearn what it means to, quote unquote, be a man? We're already challenging stereotypes by sitting down and being real and being honest. We're already challenging stereotypes with saying, what do you want to achieve in your life and what are you willing to leave behind? Not from a place of making wrong, but from like, where are you in your journey? That's one thing that really attracted me towards All Kings. I worked on several different platforms around the world, and a lot of them were to achieve the life you want to live. And in this space, we're trying to meet you where you are now. Now, where you want to be later on, great, that's part of it. But what are you dealing with right now? And that's something that we don't really converse about. We don't we don't usually create the space to just talk about what are you currently dealing with without an intention on moving the needle or creating something or for the purpose of anything else other than me listening to you. And so when we have men that can sit down and start volunteering their history, their experiences, the things that they're most ashamed about, and then the rest of the room is meeting them with love and compassion, we are already breaking the norm. Do you think that a lot of your workshops are essentially teaching people how to be friends? Because a lot of the things you're describing, I feel like my group chats with my girlfriends fulfill those needs. It's like a foreign concept teaching a man how to be a good friend. Right. I see so many jokes online about men don't have friends. They have like two or three people that they play soccer with Mm -hmm. and that they or maybe their best man at their wedding is always their childhood friend who they haven't texted in five years but they're still buddies and honestly it's just like really shedding light on how much of a support network women provide for one another so what is the emotion that women are not allowed to be in society without being without being judged what's the what's the emotion angry yeah if she's angry, she's bitchy. Yeah. She's whiny. She's dramatic. She's a drama queen. She's problematic. Don't want to deal with her. If she's sad, socially accepted. If she's happy, socially accepted. If she's. I don't feeling- even think sad is accepted. The number of times I'm walking down the street and men tell me to smile. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a completely separate agenda. They're trying to, they're, they're not, I don't know. If, my brothers are really concerned with your happiness as opposed to trying to get a smile out of you and trying to open up the door to conversation. That's a very different conversation. But what I'm saying is that it's socially understood and common for women to be emotional, except when it comes from, to being angry, because then there's a resistance. Men on onto some high level, it's the complete opposite. Even guys being happy, joyful. Like, what are you smiling about? I've definitely heard that. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. What are you smiling about? What are you so happy about? And if you're sad, oh, you're soft. Or if you're ashamed, oh, you know, pull up your panties, be a man. Toughen up. But if you're angry, 
okay, now we got an alpha. Now yeah. we got a tough guy. Now we got a strong guy. Now we got a powerful guy. And it's interpreted in many different ways. But we're not taught to necessarily be that. For a lot of men, if not most, maybe if not all, anger is often the spokesman for shame, sadness, and fear. If I'm afraid, I'm going to be angry and want to attack what's going on, what there is to be afraid about, become confrontational. That's what you hear the barking on the streets and you see the guys that are want to mouth off because it's coming from a place of fear. I feel threatened. You're a threat. So I'm going trying to scare you. I want to try to be the bear and take up as much space and scare you back. So that way you're not a threat. If I'm sad at other people or myself, I will respond in anger. If I'm ashamed, I'll be angry about it and try to oppress or beat this thing. I mean, that's why honor killings exist. It's a response to them shaming a behavior that they deem is a, is a insult to them. Yeah. And so often the MVP is, yes, of course, the most graceful maybe player, but that usually comes from the, from exercising being dominant, being, being dominant, overpowering, winning, being that aggressive self. That's what's usually frowned upon in toxic masculinity and also most desired in men. So you're saying what's most desired in men, who's desiring that? I don't desire that. I don't desire toxic masculinity. Well, it's not the toxicity, but maybe a sense of power. The maybe, machismo is well, not as I guess not, it, see machismo. What what I'm what I'm talking about if if you have a need to bark and be loud and be machismo and try to dominate over people, there's probably a lot of insecurity there. I would judge that there's a lot of insecurity there. Power doesn't have to be loud. I think there's also some confusion about let's say again heterosexual partners. There's a confusion about what women think they want for men or what men think they're supposed to be in relationships. So, you know, women want the understanding guy, the compassionate, vulnerable, sweet guy, but at the same time, consciously or subconsciously, well, I want to feel safe with my partner. I don't want to feel that this person has no drive or decision-making. I want to feel like the lady in this thing. Again, I'm speaking about heterosexual, common, traditional relationships. So there is this like, all right, well, be manly, but no, not like that. But yes, like, no, that's too unmanly. No, be manlier than that. But no, 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 not like that. So what does it mean? And it's subjective towards every person that is placing judgment on this person about what does it mean to be a man? Do you think that some cultures encourage a certain type of masculinity that other cultures don't? Absolutely. I think they're old cultural norms. I growing up as Latino, and again, a lot of my brothers can relate to this, it was a man up, tough enough, boys don't cry. I need to be the man of the house. I need to be tough because if not, this world will swallow me up. I grew up away from my father. So my mother assumed a very masculine role and she was about provide. Emotionally, she wasn't, she was just dealing with so much. She was just dealing and drowning with so much and battling her own fatigue and her own jadedness and trying to keep us alive and working you know, two jobs overtime. And it was, there was no space for weakness. Got to be tough, especially me. I'm the boy, got to be tough. If I grew up around that environment, that's what I know. That's what I've practiced for all these years. And so the downfall about it is that if I'm taught and trained from a young age to ignore my emotions and suppress them, then as I grow up and I sit in front of you, how am I supposed to really understand what you're feeling? How am I supposed to really hold you in a safe way when I've trained myself all these years to ignore every bit of that and just deal with it? I'm probably not going to do as effective a job. So women culturally 
traditionally in society exercise being emotional with each other. And not in a bad way. I just mean be having access to your emotion. When there's joy, there's like there's an explosion of joy. When there's sadness, there's support, there's acceptance. We were talking about it the other day. If there's if you're dealing with a heartbreak, you might have some of your girlfriends want to come take you out. Let's oh, go yeah. get a drink. Let's have a conversation. Let's. There's let's... a lot of emotionally available women. Anytime I've been heartbroken and a heartache, I've been met with, oh, you'll be fine. And that's it. There's no follow-up You'll call. get over it. There's no, there's no follow-up call saying, how are you doing? Let's get you out the house. I know you're dealing with this heartache. Or very rarely some small degree form of it. And that is so common. Do you think that that's why oftentimes when a relationship ends, women in a heterosexual relationship will experience all of their sadness in the first three months? And then the man will kind of process that the, the breakup happened and he'll circle back three months later. Is it because he's taken that time to process or what do you think's happening there? I just often see this mismatch in processing times. It's the medicine that we deal with our wounds. So or I would speak for some guys that if they're coming out of heartbreak or heartache and don't know how to sit with their emotion, and now there's an influx, I'm experiencing all this pain, all this sadness. I'm not trained for the job. I'm trained to desensitize and suppress these feelings. So I'm going to utilize other medicine to distract myself. Drugs, alcohol, sex, attention, going out with their boys, belittling emotions so that way I could feel stronger. When if a, if a tr typical traditional woman that has more experience and has a peer group where that could be accepted, all that processing could start ha happening automatically. And for men, usually not. Usually is when we sit with it and after a while, the distractions start to die down. The, the, the other things that we utilize as a support, as a coping mechanism are no longer working. And so heartache sometimes or often comes later on for men. And even then, there's still no one really to hear them. So. Because men don't come over to your place with ice cream to help this you is, get this over is a breakup. Thing. Brothers, come over, get, let's get some <laughs> ice cream. We'll talk about it. We'll sit in a circle and be real. Imagine that, though. Imagine a world where a man doesn't have to learn how to, like, one, one thing I, I say is develop emotional callus, where men don't have to develop emotional callus to lick their wounds and deal with their pain, where we could actually met, we could be met with love and acceptance and support. How much more just holistic energy would men cultivate in being in a relationship with each other? But do you think that they're not communicating these needs? Like when a guy goes through a breakup, do you think he's telling his boys, I could really use a friend right now because some of it is intuition. So some of my friends are very intuitive and they'll come over right after or they'll call me and check in all the time. And some, I have to tell them, I could really use some support right now. Mm -hmm. So do you think that it's the friends that are not really intuitive or do you think that men also have to become comfortable with asking for help? I think it's both yeah. because it, it, I'll, I'll judge that it might be scarier for me to pick up the phone right now and say, man, I'm hurting, then it is scarier for you to call, pick up the phone right now and tell someone you're hurting. I would imagine that yeah. might be harder for me because of my upbringing, my friends or the guys, more so the guys that I'm around, because I actually grew up around a lot of women. And uh, a lot of the guys that I'm around didn't know how to really hold that. Thankfully, now I'm, a, I'm around some brilliant, beautiful men that I could speak this 
And a week later, one of my brothers will call me. He's like, hey, how you doing, man? Whoa, that is revolutionary for me. Yeah. For me. Uh, I'm sure there's some men groups out there that had that growing up and you're fortunate, but it's a rare thing. The commonality of masculinity in our societies don't really create the safe space for that. I think that obviously there's a very specific definition of toxic masculinity in Egypt. And there's a whole brand of it that if I just utter toxic masculinity in Egypt, a certain image comes to mind. But I think American culture just has slightly better PR. I think that there's also a ton of toxic masculinity everywhere. Uh, And I think that it's even like little things like the stoic father archetype or stereotype in the US that's very common here. You meet people from different backgrounds, but ask them, when's the last time you saw your dad cry? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the answer is never. Yeah. I mean, I never saw my dad cry until my mom passed away. I never saw him shed a tear until he was 57 years old. Mm -hmm. And I know he's had, he's been through everything. He's, he's lived through the Gulf War. He's moved dozens of times. He has just constantly experienced everything from financial hardship to loss, losing both his parents. And I never saw him cry when his dad died, when his nephew died. It's- so it's not even just men supporting men. I think in society, women also just accept and understand that, well, you're sad, but you're a man. You'll get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Men don't know how to feel anyways. And so we all participate in a man not having a safe space to really speak their mind and authentic because we already, to some level, subconsciously or consciously assume that when it comes to feeling in men, it's not a big deal. That's true. I would say at least three times a day, I get a text from a friend that says men are trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, like, I, in here, let me say this. I'm not going to excuse the destruction that men do. I'm not saying. Any There's a lot of There's it. A ton of it all over the world in every corner. I think the leading problems that occur through conflict are if not, maybe all problems are male-driven. Macro and on a micro scale. Yes, completely. And that being said, this is learned somewhere. So coming back to what we do with all kings, these guys were once babies. They would once innocently smile at their parents or whoever was around that they feel safe enough by. They once sat on a carpet and touched it and I felt it touch back and feeling that connection and curiosity and wonder. And pain started accumulating differently because of circumstances and how it was interpreted based on the skill sets that they had. This is all learned behavior. You know, these were young, once young, these were once babies that meant really well and just were fueled by love and just learned the hard way uh, how to interact and deal with their reality. And they responded accordingly to what they knew. And again, not to make it right, not to make it okay, but it comes from somewhere. And all kings we focus on creating a safe space to be met with that type of love. So what do you teach them about emotions? Because they're very familiar with anger. Mm -hmm. So you don't dive into that one. But what emotion are you really diving into in these conversations and workshops? We go through, there's five dominant emotions. There's a study that says about five dominant emotions, fear, joy, sadness, shame, and anger, right? And everything that's felt, and you know, maybe there's a wider range of, of emotions, but they could generally be categorized within those five. And we make space for all five of them, even being angry. I myself as a man have been doing this work, but where can I really go and 
lose my cool. I don't know if I could curse on here. <laughs> you can. <laughs> All right, cool. If I was going to lose my shit, like, where can I really be angry? Because if you and I get into an argument and I unleash being angry, even if it's not physically violent towards you, if I'm just, if I just blow up in anger, I'm now being verbally abusive or mentally abusive or emotionally abusive. If I respond for someone who cuts me off and I'm screaming at them using anger, that is toxic. So there isn't really a space where I could go and be untethered angry, even in a healthy way. So I don't, if I don't have a vehicle to express it, yeah, that's one way to do it. That's one way to do it for sure. And it's still, even in a sense of like martial arts that I think is a brilliant, fascinating way to express that because there's a lot of love and respect there also if you do it right some guys who just want to get there they want to get hit and they want to hit people i'm not talking about them but in our weekends we create a space to bring all of that or even in our weekly circles because i spoke about our quest but we also meet weekly to provide continued support for all of our men and so i'm not so much teaching you about sadness i'm creating or we're creating because i'm not doing anything we're doing this together we create the space to have dialogues around these emotions so we have a time of the weekend where we grieve over loss, over heartache, or things that we've been impacted before. We have parts in our weekends where we talk about shame, where we talk about the most shameful thing that we know about ourselves that we don't want anyone else to know about us. We create a safe container to talk about that. And that's so huge because there are some things that many, if not all the men share, that they thought they were going to take this to the grave. They thought, I will never say this to anyone ever because I'm so ashamed. And for the first time, they're able to name it and be met with love and acceptance, that thing that they were most burdened by. And so that itself just unlocks infinite possibilities. Fear, sadness, shame, anger, joy. We create a space for all of it. So we are not really teaching how to identify it. We're doing it through exercises and getting you familiar with yourself. So you're helping men become more in touch with their emotions. Completely. Do you think that a lot of the issues we have in the world, whether it's on a micro scale, so bad behavior in the dating world, and then up to war and the situation in Iran right now, do you think that that comes from men not being able to process their emotions? I think a large part, not all of it. Sure. I hate making an excuse well, for men though. It right. sounds like an excuse. Well, it's, it doesn't make, again, it doesn't make it right, but where does it come from? Let's say, let's say right now, let's paint an extreme circumstance. You live in a place that is far from comfortable. Let's say you sleep on a bed that you're not comfortable with. How do you think you're going to feel the next day? Tired. Yeah. You're going to feel tired, right? If you're not held by your environment. So if you're feeling tired and then you go out and the community around you is not having a safe space for you to be open or vulnerable or anything, you're probably going to be shut down, right? You're not going to have a safe outlet to really go and speak because who cares? And even if you do speak, I might actually be put down for what I'm vulnerable for. So let me swallow that up. So now I'm tired and I'm swallowing up my emotions. And now you have oppression up against you or societal norms or expectations or things that are happening in your world that are gradually, continuously, small or big, making you angry in your face, disrespecting you, putting you down. Now you have all that stuff bottled up. You build all that anger. And you're a ticking time bomb. That buildup, if it doesn't have spaciousness to be expressed and processed, will just accumulate 
until it explodes. Some of our guys that especially that have served time, if they're struggling with money, they're struggling with a place to live, they're struggling from acceptance from a community, they're struggling from acceptance from their family, <laughs> excuse me, they don't have the peer support to really uplift them. And they have all of life circumstances going against them. Now you cross that person the wrong way. And this person learned how to defend and take care of themselves inside of a federal prison for the last 10, 15 years. They're going to do what they know to do. Anybody would. Anybody knows to do what they do. So a lot of people believe that people go into mental health counseling to heal themselves. Did you go into this line of work to heal yourself? Why were you drawn to this or how did they find you? That is such a loaded question. And <laughs> in a short response, yes. I was screaming for safety and to be held. And it just wasn't there. And so I just learned how to deal with it from a young age. I used to pray when I was really little. I grew up in a household where there was emotional abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse. It wasn't the common norm, but it was enough for me to be like, oh, that was off, but that was wrong. Or, oh, here they're fighting again. Or, oh, the cops are here now. And, and the level of physical violence that my father inflicted on my mom or infidelity or the drinking or any of that stuff from a young age, I didn't have the skills at five years old to say, hey, this is really hurting me because I'm not understanding what's going on. And that's really, that's what trauma is. Trauma is an experience that I can't comprehend, that I can't fathom. My mind can't structure and define and make sense about what's going on. So this big sensation now lives in the body. And we call that trauma because now I'm twice as old. I'm 10 years old now, but I still have this thing that shook me five years ago that I never had language for. And I walk around now kind of afraid. So for me, growing up in that environment was rough and I didn't have the support that I needed to to really say, you're safe. How, how are you? How did that affect you? I mean, you were not safe. I wasn't safe and we weren't safe. And it was also not at any consequence. My mom is a phenomenal mother and she did her absolute best, but we were all suffering to a certain extent. So when I was 10, I was born in Texas and we left Texas to go to New York. My mom, my sisters, uh, we moved to New York. How many sisters? I had three sisters. They're so, all older. So you guys packed up and left? We packed up and left, uh, essentially getting away from my father. My father continues to live in Texas. So at 10, I grew up in this house. Until 10, I grew up in this household where I was my dad's shadow. He wasn't a terrible man all around. He had moments of it. And those moments were terrible and frightening and destructive. And other times, we were best friends. And he would be the guy to put on a record and dance with my mom in the kitchen. He was also who I wanted to be. He was a talented artist. He was a talented musician. He was funny. But he was also this other side, this untamed shadow he never learned to be in relationship with and just let it spill out on us. And so then when we came to New York, I was even more alone because in Texas, I had a cousin that I was very close to. And now I don't have him. I was my dad's shadow. Now I don't have him. My mom's working two jobs, working all the time, jaded and angry. My sisters are happy to be away. And either way, we never established that type of relationship for me to say, man, I'm really going through something. 
you know, it's like sibling love. Thankfully, now in our relationship, I'm very close to my sister. So we have, we've had open conversations recently of like, oh, this happened to you, this happened to me. And we shared this really intimate thing about kind of expressing that because growing up, we just didn't have that safe container. But then who decided that you would pack up and leave? My mom. Things got eventually bad enough, thankfully, that she's like, I need to get out of here. And she has or had a sister that lives here in New York. And we left. We left and we planted roots here and started life over again here. But now we have an economical struggle because my mom's trying to take care of all of her kids working day and night in emotional detachment struggle because she doesn't have emotional bandwidth to hold me. She's drowning in her own anger. And she loved him. He was toxic, but yeah. she... Yeah. The highs were high. I applaud my mom's resilience so much because she grew up, she had a really rough life growing up. And that's a whole other story. Like she, you know, all the way down her, her, her lifeline has been a battle and struggle. And so she was just done, but she's so resilient that she never tapped out. She just kept on chucking forward. And though I was met with that type of love, like a masculine love, there was no space for me to be quote unquote weak or vulnerable because there was no time or space for that just got to deal with it and so as i was growing up i thankfully had different medicines like dance i'm a former dancer musician artist but those were all vehicles of me just dishing out my anger and emotions and so that was that was happening and then when i was another side story when i was 17 my father got sick for the first time with cancer he's been diagnosed a few times and it was the first time I went back to Texas to go take care of him. Despite everything, we were still friends. He wasn't my father anymore like that, but he was more my friend. And when I went there, you know, I was working three jobs, trying to sustain him, take care of him. I was even drowning even more in my emotions. So for the first 20 years, I had this cloud, this dark cloud hovering above me with no real safe place to talk about it. And I was never suicidal but I really didn't want to be around anymore. You know, if I prayed to a God, I was just like, just take me out. Man. I am so done. I am so okay with not being here. You know, the largest percentage of suicide come from men. And I would imagine it felt something like that. I'm not wanting to be here anymore. Fast forward a couple of years now, there's this cousin of mine. And it's interesting to talk about him because this really planted a seed and changed something for me. There's a cousin of mine who, God rest his soul, he passed because of alcohol abuse. He literally drank until his body shut down. That was his medicine. That's how he dealt with his sadness, his pain, his life circumstances was drink it away. And he did that until he transitioned out. And on the last couple of months of his life, I remember him being on a hospital bed. You know, my my mom and my sister were there where massaging his legs he started getting those those bed sores like bed rashes from laying down in the bed too long his bones started forming towards the bed he would be in pain because his body is no longer working it's shutting down so he would shake his body back and forth in the bed and cry lips quivering just just falling apart in front of us we couldn't do anything about it and then he would say no sabia i didn't know I didn't know I was going to get this bad. I didn't know I was going to get to that point of return. And at that moment, I was thankful that I found medicine in vehicles like music, dance, art, sports, 
to alleviate some of my suffering because my cousin didn't have that. Where was everyone? I didn't know about AA. I didn't know about support groups. I didn't know about ayahuasca. I didn't know about anything. Where was everyone? Why are we so ingrained to not talking? That that my cousin had didn't have someone that was an anchor enough to have an alternative to him drinking himself to death. And I was just furious about that. And it could have been me. I could have grew up just like my dad. I could have grew up around that world. When I was 22, I did my first transformational platform, emotional intelligence, coaching work, life coaching stuff. And this pain that I thought was mine, I learned how to put a piece of it down. It was my first like breath of fresh air from my relationship to my reality. It was my first breath and be like, oh my gosh, it doesn't have to be this way. And at 22, I said, that's my mission. I need to get this medicine to as many people as possible. I'm here to shake this shit up. I want to wake people up to let people know there's an alternative, that we could shed our viewpoints and our filters and our belief systems on how we see life, how we see ourselves, how we see each other, break down these boundaries, see each other, work together, and start healing this world. Everywhere I've traveled around the world doing this work, I've been to nearly over 50 countries working with transformational platforms and the underdog. I've worked with oppressed communities all around the world, which is another story. I find everyone looking for peace, love, and connection. People want to be in peace. They want to be in their love, and they want to share it with the people in their world. Despite circumstances, economical status, where you are in the world, we're all what just age the you are, same. we're all the same. Why aren't we working together? Why isn't your pain my pain and my pain your pain? Just like my joy could be your joy. We're good at sharing that. Oh, I'm feeling good. So I love the world. Oh, I'm feeling crappy. Well, let me just go hide. Let me deal with my suffering alone. There's a brother of mine who is in All Kings. He said something to me recently. He says, I see you. I see that you are really good at seeing people because I would imagine you wish someone saw you too. And I just broke down. I was like, yes. Like, I wasn't seen. And I needed it. I needed it. And I, I felt so much pain and sorrow that that's what drives me. That's why I'll go and I'll hear your most heinous story because you deserve to be loved too. Because you are a king, regardless of what this entire life has taught you. Oh, is that where the name comes all from? All kings. <laughs> we are all kings. There's this book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. And we, we base off archetypes the same way as it's a great book. Read it. Um, but we are all these kings when we've been taught that we aren't, we're not, that we're worthless, that we're scum, that we're not good enough. You're a criminal. You're, you're toxic. You're, you're bitch. You're whatever. Nah, man, we're all kings here. So much of your work is getting men to be in touch with their emotions. So your work could be extended to anyone not just people that were formerly incarcerated. I think so many people don't have the space to sit with their emotions, regardless of gender or socioeconomic status. How how would someone that doesn't have these resources, how would they even start to get in touch with their emotions? I think it's finding places, safe containers that they could do so. You know, we have a focus on primarily formerly incarcerated men. And then second to that is... We like to have a focus of people of color because those are the people who have been targeted by our system. 
the majority of our incarceration system are people of color, yet we are a minority in the world, in the U.S. Um, and so our first focus is on formerly incarcerated men. Our second focus is people of color. And our third is just, you know, if you're a man and you don't have a safe space, you're dealing with something, come sit with us. Come take up space. We have a chair for you. And if not this, if you are looking to you know, drive your career or your personal development goals, or if you need therapy, there's a bunch of different vehicles. You just need to start asking and have the courage to be put down for that vulnerability, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that if someone listens to this, they might go to their community and the people that they feel closest to and say, I need support, emotional support. And someone is going to get put down listening to this. I'd like to think that that won't be the case and that hopefully people listen to this and think, have I been a good friend to my male yeah. and female friend? What, have I been there for people? But I'm saying if they're, if, you're, if they're listening to this and they need that support and they start asking for it when they never asked for it before, someone might be met, likely will be met with some type of humor or deflection. And that's hard. It's hard to be vulnerable to saying, I need to be held emotionally or physically. I, I need to be held and dealing with stuff because it's so not the norm of who we're supposed to be in our world. And it's also this a level of dealing with it. There's something I heard recently of new levels, new devils, meaning the deeper I get into my healing or my, my awareness, my mental emotional awareness, the new shadow pieces that I discover. And that's everlasting. Because another thing is about the expectation of us doing this work. Because I do men's work, am I supposed to know what it is to be a perfect man? By far not. I get insecure. I get angry. I get sad. I get beat up by my reality, by my emotions. I do my best to navigate through that in a sound way that upholds my integrity. And I fail sometimes. And so there's this misconception when, well, you do this work, you're, you're supposed to be perfect then. Or you do coaching work, you should never be unhappy. If you if you do something fulfilling, then if you're a therapist, then you yes. can't possibly need therapy. Yeah, wrong. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so I think that comes from a very naive perception on what it means to do the work. The reason why it's the work is because it's continued. We we never we're never done with it. We just graduate to new levels of it. And eventually, ideally, we become so in harmony with it that we understand that light and shadow is something to be integrated and danced together. It's not about killing my demons. It's not about eliminating my sense of fear. Because if you love, then you fear. If you love your kid, you will be afraid when they step on off the curve and, you know, or go fall in love for the first time. You might be excited for them, but you might be fear for their heartache. You know, that's part of it. So if you're trying not to be afraid, good luck. If you're trying never to be angry, you're probably going to have to ignore some things that are really going on for you in order to not be angry. But if you allow yourself to not be dominated by these things, and these emotions are not allowed to just drive the car and dictate your life, then great, now we can start being somewhere in the middle. And so maybe the norm for you back home, the norm that they grew up around is to be this much in touch with your emotions. And we're not allowed to be that way. There's also that level, there's a bit of immigrant pride at play. Mm -hmm. uh, I had this conversation with my father. I was asking him, why doesn't he make friends at the mosque? Why doesn't he talk to people? He said, and tell a stranger all my secrets. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that's kind of the fundamentals of 
building friendship. You become friends with someone by being vulnerable with them. Right. I've never become close with someone that only gave me engaged in small talk right. or gave me scraps. Right. I'm close with someone when we both shared our deepest insecurities. Mm-hmm. But I think there's that immigrant pride of I'm doing okay. I gave up a lot in my country and I'm here now. So I have to pretend like mm-hmm. everything's perfect. Yeah. Because navigating and dealing with so much of that is, again, is permission that I have to to do so. That means I've exercised all these years. I'm not allowing myself to go there. So therefore, it's not okay. There's all these laws and filters that we we see through. And at the end, do we all know how to be? And manager, we all showed up at the table with our realist self. Some people don't want to deal with that. Ignorance is bliss. I don't want to, if I'm, a lot of people ask you, how are you doing? As in just a staple, you know, question, rather than asking you, how are you really doing? Do I really want to hear half an hour about how you're really doing? Or do I want to hear fine? No, that was one of, it's funny you brought that up because Mm -hmm. that was initial culture shock when I first moved to the States. Um, At at the University of Pennsylvania, there's this long walkway that you go to that connects different parts of the campus. And people, you come across someone that you know, and they'd be like, hey, how's it going? And then they keep walking. Whereas in the Middle East, you stop and you ask how they're doing, you really mean it. But I realized very quickly within like less than a week on campus that when people say, how's it going or how are you? It's just a formality. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> they mean, just I keep do, walking. I'm, I'm guilty of both. I mean, now I do it too. Yeah. I mean, I'm in New York. How are you doing? How are you doing? <laughs> how's it going? <laughs> yeah, how's it going? How's, how are you doing? And yeah, so there's a lot of times I'm, I'm just like, hey, how are you doing? Anyways, and I'll get into something. I always appreciate when someone does a check-in. Like, I love it when every All Kings call starts with a check-in. Every meeting we have with one-on-one or in a group starts with a check-in. We do not get to anything else unless we check in where are we at. And that's just an opportunity to get out of our heads and into our hearts. How are you really doing? And we want we want to practice that. What are you feeling? I'm feeling anger. All right, what's going on? I'm angry because of this. But it takes you know. a lot to even know how you feel. I mean, at this that's very why we moment. Practice. Yeah, that's why we sit every week. That's why we do continue doing this because it's a space for me and them to sit together every week and practice. So this is a weekly commitment, but there are also retreats where you go right. away for the weekend. So all King's pillars, there's three pillars. Our first pillar is our quest weekends. It's our deep dive retreats to go really deep into what who we are, how do we get here? You know, let's excavate some of our, our emotions. Uh, and that's that's to really set the container. We call those initiation quest weekends. So initiation now is traditionally in gangs, fraternities, something patriarchal, othering the people. And we want to bring back this old tribal sense of initiations. Of You're like reclaiming initiations. Reclaiming initiations. We are here. We are we're bringing you into this brotherhood. And I'll bring you into yourself. Our second pillar is our weekly circles. We have Brooklyn, Harlem, and online. Every week, those three communities meet and sit in circle for two to two and a half hours. And we get real. And our third pillar is leadership and development. Our community is all about take space, make space. Once you come, pour in everything you got, we'll hold you, we'll help facilitate you. And then when you're done, learn some of these skills so now you can make space for the next So we're teaching men how to support men be in themselves. It sounds like the only non-toxic fraternity model I've ever heard. It's like you took out the red solo cups and yeah. <laughs> replaced it with actual substance and brotherhood that's meaningful. Yeah. We tried. 
and I do my best to just listen to intuition and support guide guide the way to the next steps. Were you also doing work on yourself or were Always. you hoping that by healing people, you could heal yourself? Well, it's both. There was, I was doing work on myself. Part of my shadow pieces is that I have a hard time receiving. So it's hard for me to take up space. Do you have a hard time receiving love? I have a hard time, I believe, receiving support. Maybe love a little better, but support is... Is it extreme independence a trauma response to having no help in the household? Right, absolutely. When I was a little kid, I I used to pray to a Christian God before, and now I'm more agnostic. But when I would pray, I would say... I'm fine. I don't need anything. Help me help them. So from six years old. You were still too shy to ask God for anything. I would not ask for a thing. Why? Because when I really needed it, what I learned about the trauma response is that when I really needed it and it wasn't met, I was, I taught, I, my, the programming that was ingrained was I'm fine. I don't need anything. When people just give to me without there being some exchange, I really battle. I'm a million times better at it today. But it's part of my growing that I still get to do is learning how to receive and be taken care of because my own trauma, I'm terrified. I'm afraid of what if I allow myself to need you and then you leave. So you're 37 now. How much of your trauma do you think you've healed at this point? (laughs) I have no clue because again, new levels, new devils. And now I'm not there anymore. And so I've done a lot of healing but there's more and more that gets to be uncovered. There's some situation. My dad and I have somewhat of a relationship. We were great friends growing up because I just never needed anything from him. But earlier this year, he did more things to just uproot and hurt me and opened up new levels of trauma. I thought my trauma was something of the past that I'm processing and dealing with now. And he gave me more to deal with now. So he... So you helped him when he was first diagnosed with cancer and then eventually you I've went taken back care of him. He's been diagnosed four times with cancer and each time I've taken care of him. Uh the first time I moved back, the other times I would travel every, you know, four to six weeks to take him to chemotherapies, chemo chemotherapy sessions. I would be on the phone with oncologists and doctors Monday through Friday. I'm calling insurance. I'm threatening people to that I'm going to sue if they don't get him on a certain so place. He's very much in your life still. I have been his caretaker in a sense when okay. through his illness. And other than that, we've been friends. Um, I would say he's been in my life up until earlier this year that he messed up in a way that I've achieved a level of self-love within myself that I chose to set a boundary of like, yeah, that's that's not okay anymore. I made I made decisions when I was 10 years old on who to be. And that's what I was sharing with you before. That there was when I was 10, we were leaving Texas and go to New York, going to New York. I was in a tremendous state of loss. I was losing my home. My my the closest thing to a safe haven, but it wasn't safe, but closest thing to a safe haven. I'm losing my dad, who I was stuck at the hip with. I'm losing my cousin, who I was super tight with, and I was always around, and he was like my idol growing up. I'm losing all these things because of decisions that when I was a kid, I made a decision to not be those things. 
my dad was my greatest mentor or what not to be. He would drink. I'm not going to drink. He disrespected women. I'm going to respect women to the best of my abilities. Granted, again, I've also made mistakes, right? He was super talented in a bunch of different ways in art, music, dance, sports, whatever. And he never did anything with those talents. You know, he, he became a bus driver, which is nothing wrong, nothing wrong with being a bus driver, but he had all this potential that he never tapped into. I'm going to tap into all of my potential. So I'm a hobbyist. I know how to do a bunch of stuff because I wanted to make the most out of my curiosities. So he really supported me in becoming who I wanted to be because I know the loss of not being that. So he unintentionally helped you by being the opposite of what you want to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in exchange, he's helping me heal people around the world. Because if I didn't have that pain, would I be doing what I'm doing now? And there's a saying that are you willing to leave who you are to become who you get to be? Are you willing to let go of what you have to have what you don't? In your relationship or beyond? Period. Period. All around. So I got to a point in myself where I started letting go who I thought I was. So a lot of people say, go find yourself. Really, I mean, I think they mean define yourself, define, like start intentionally creating yourself as who you want to be. And then you can build that up and create all amounts of success. And then I arrived to the part of my journey where I'm like, all right, well, now I'm here. Let me let go of who I think I am. So let me step into the next version of myself. Let me let go of who I thought I was. And in that process, I started dating someone that I knew intuitively is not the right place for me. And I was like, okay, well, ignore your intuition. You've dated some beautiful women that have been amazing. I mean, beautiful, like internally, externally, like really brilliant women. And that hasn't worked out. You're the common denominator. Maybe you're the problem with here. (laughs) Okay, so let me ignore my intuition and give that a chance. And I did so. And it was a first relationship that I feel like I messed up. Like I messed up with myself. I messed up with her. I was ignoring my tuition. I caused both of us pain. I caused myself pain. And it's it was like, okay, thankfully arrived to a circle where someone just asked, what's going on for you? Like really, you know, and, and answer from there. Do you feel like your childhood trauma still follows you today at 37 in your relationships? Is it totally. affecting your dating? Sure, totally. And you've done the work. So what hope is that? <laughs> well, here's the thing. To to the, the level of emotional intelligence I have is to be able to spot it when it's there. And so now I could be with a partner and say, hey, these are the ways that I historically sabotage. Here's how I'm going to try to run from you. Here's where I'm going to be terrified of you because of these reasons. I'm not just going to let it play out subconsciously. And I'm sure to some level, subconsciously, it plays out to some degree where my body will start rejecting it. It's kind of like you wanting something that's not necessarily good for you, like a craving for a cigarette. Oh man, I want it. And when I get it, it's going to be so relaxing and pleasing. It doesn't mean it's good for you. A lot of times our desires, our disguise, our our sabotage is disguised as our friend. And so, you know, it would be really good right now to avoid with sex. That would be amazing. That would feel so good. I don't have to feel. It's a net positive, but is it really? Mm-hmm. You know, am I doing more damage to myself? I'm at a place right now where I could name it and I could identify it when it's showing up. So it's not just me just messing things up as programmed. It's me being in a relationship with it and saying, hey, I discovered that I'm really afraid of relationships because my teachers 
aka my parents taught me that if there's a lot of pain if there's a lot of fighting a lot of arguing until we destroy each other and walk away from each other that's what relationships are so subconsciously i'm doing great and then you have that moment where you're <laughs> the record player and you're dancing in the kitchen yeah and then i'm being it and then i'm not being it. i'm like where's the line of what i know to be i know i could spot something when it's toxic what else do i know relationships to be if not that there's a coach that pointed out to me a long time ago so though i've been doing this work for the last you know 15 years i have deep ingrained programming of all i know reality is to be and so I'm redefining and retelling that story and I'm a lot more of a sound place. I have like healthy relationships and boundaries. And there's sometimes where I slip up and it's not that, but. um, Do you think in households where you grow up and see an example of love that is controversial, maybe a little bit toxic that when you do find a love that's peaceful and easy, you start to wonder if it is real love because it's not super passionate. Totally. Have how you do you unlearn? Yeah. How do, how do you unlearn? I mean, I'm at a point where like, I look back at all my relationships and though they've been brilliant and I've dated some amazing women, I don't regret any of them ending. I don't look back and be like, oh, if I knew what I knew now, then I would still be there. That's not the case for me. I've intuitively been aligned to know like, yeah, that's really not. And I, I either took me too long to notice or I knew from the beginning and I made the right call. But it's also in the media. I mean, I grew up watching telenovelas. I grew up watching Arabic movies where there's so much passion and anger on top of that love and nurturing. So how do you unlearn that so you don't sabotage a peaceful, easy relationship because you have this ingrained idea that of what love looks like and that it should be passionate and heated and therefore kind of toxic? Communication radical honesty let's talk about it let me be willing to be wrong also i think that is so important to be in relationships if i'm so attached to being righteous then i'm missing out on all these lessons and gold that i could grow into and there's another coach that i know would say you could either be right or be in relationship (laughs) you could be right all you want and cool the world will yeah that's a green sky and purple grass and whatever you want to say like You could be right about whatever you think you're right about, or especially in something romantic where we're creating something that's really new and different and energy and synergy that's between you and I, or whatever the agreement is. And you're each coming in with your perception of the world. Completely. You are right. Your baggage. (laughs) Right. You are right and you are wrong. And if we're not really humble enough to do this work together, then we're probably going to break stuff. But that's implying self-awareness. A lot of times people that are emotionally unavailable, Mm -hmm. they refuse to accept love. They push you away. Yeah, that's where they're on their journey. There's something that's bigger. There's something that's more valuable than being in a relationship. For them. For them. I mean, we're always choosing the better route. We are always doing the best we can with what we know. So if I'm here and we're in a relationship and I break this, it's because safety is more important for me. And I feel safer out there alone than I am here vulnerable with you. A lot of times I've seen men from all walks of life who have experienced a wide range of suffering. And to this day, one of the the most common phrases you hear is if he wanted to, he would. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it 
confirmed in almost every scenario. Mm -hmm. So in defense of men, since that's mm -hmm. kind of what you're doing here today, <laughs> what do you have to say about that? Because I still yeah. think that no matter what stage a man is in his healing journey, if he wants someone, he will do anything to get hurt. Mm -hmm. So I think that when we tell women, no, it's not always true. We're, um, we're putting the burden on women to be patient with men who don't really want them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's as easy and not, it's not as black and white and it is as black as white as if, if he really wanted to, he would, but where it's layered is that it's not that he doesn't want you is that there's something that he wants more whether it's them, whether it's himself and his freedom with his focus or whether his safety and not having to confront his fears, there's something that's bigger than this, which is fine. That's, it's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to, well, you're a good person. I'm a good person. We should be together. And if you're not being with me, you're just running because of yourself. No, you're just not for me right now. You're not willing to risk my heart and my heartache. You're not willing for me to jeopardize heartbreak and being homeless again and losing, losing my entire life. I I believe metaphorically in, metaphor homeless, right? Yeah, metaphorically homeless. Let's mm -hmm. say let's say I'm in a relationship. Let's say I'm starting to get involved with someone who I I trust for where we are now, but I don't necessarily trust and want to raise a family with. And that is conscious for me, but for a lot of people who haven't done any work, that might not be really conscious. I don't know why I don't want to be with you. I just don't want to be with you. And if they had the language for it, they would say, I wouldn't trust you as a mom. I don't trust you as a partner or I'm bored of you or I'm not going to be attracted to you later on. And I just resist you or, oh, you don't let me get away with bullshit. I don't want that. I want someone that's naive and is going to let me get away with bullshit. It's not always empowering, but there's something that is more desired. That was a great answer. That was a really good answer. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for listening and creating a safe space for us to dive in and talk about this stuff. I created the container. You created a safe container for me to come <laughs> in and pour into. Thank you. Yes, you did. To learn more about All Kings, visit allkings.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please hit the follow button and leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to show us some love on Instagram and TikTok at Phasing Out Podcasts. Mm -hmm.